So 2019 was the first full year that Stephanie Arnold was our senior pastor. This church goes all the way back to 1891, and it took us over 100 years to have our first woman senior pastor. And in 2019, we had over 70 new people join our church. And as Katie mentioned, we came closer, if not all the way, to our income meeting our expenses uh, without having to take in money from endowments that we have in any year in a very, very long time. It turns out that Stephanie is the leader we needed at this point in time in our church and in this season in the United Methodist Church. And while I am so grateful we get to experience her leadership, I can't help but wonder how many other churches or businesses or organizations are missing out on the leadership they need because they think it's a man who's supposed to be in that role, either explicitly or implicitly. So I am so grateful for the woman who leads us here at First Church. And now that I've told you all these great things about Stephanie, I need to tell you about the time in my first year of seminary when I was a grade-A jackass. <laughs> so I was a part of a small group, and in one meeting, a woman in our group who was going through a very hard time sort of asked a question that, in retrospect, I am sure was meant to be a rhetorical question. Why does God give me more than I can handle? So I was the idiot who not only thought that she was looking for an answer to that question, but I was the person who could provide it. <laughs> so I told my wife, Mary Page, this story, and she said, so you thought everybody else in the room was entitled to your opinion about something that you knew absolutely nothing about? Right, so you were basically just a typical straight white man in that moment. <laughs> I still am, y'all. I still am a straight white man, and even now I realize how ridiculous it was for me to try to answer her question. I quoted the Bible at her saying, well, now the Bible says God won't give you more than you can handle. So even if it feels like God is giving you more than you can handle, you're going to be okay. Looking back, not only was it the height of arrogant stupid... Y'all, please don't fire me as your pastor. <laughs> Not only was it the height of arrogant stupidity to think that I could answer a question that has no answer, but I also added to the pain that she was already feeling. My words and my use of the Bible harmed her in that moment. Thankfully, several members of our group called me out and hopefully minimized the harm that I had done, but I am sure that I caused harm to her. And sadly, I am far from the only person who has used words and scripture to hurt other people. In fact, that's sort of been a sad part of the church's history for its entirety. Way too often, people like me, pastors, seminary students, seminary professors, church leaders, we have used words that have shamed, have hurt, and even at times abused people, when our words should always bring healing and hope. In this sermon series, as Katie mentioned, church words, curse words, we're going to look at three words that are part of our Christian lingo. And we're going to name the ways that these words have harmed rather than brought life. And maybe each week we'll spend a little bit of time seeing if there is any way to redeem these words or if they just need to be completely thrown out. So this week we're talking about submission, next week witness, and then we'll close out the sermon series by talking about purity. But before I get into that, I need to name something at the outset. That while I made a joke about being a straight white male just a minute ago, 
In all seriousness, I'm a part of the most privileged group in our society. And one thing that means is that I have never been a part of a group that has been harmed by these words. I'm a Christian and really have been my whole life, so I've never really been told that I was going to hell for believing the wrong thing. I've always been a part of the group in society with the most power, so I've never been told that I was supposed to submit. And growing up, while I was told that I should wait until marriage to be sexually active, it didn't come with the same threats of shame that young women experienced around purity culture. But I do think it's important for people like me, for people who haven't been hurt by these words, to to speak out whenever anyone is, and to name the ways the words of the church have have hurt, hurt others, and to confess the ways that I have been complicit in that. And I also need to acknowledge that in talking about submission today, that it doesn't come with the same place of pain that say Stephanie or Katie sharing the ways that she's experienced that may have when they talk about this word. It's not as personal to me. And so I feel like those are things that are important for me to name at the outset. Now there are several passages of scripture, particularly in the New Testament epistles, which basically means the letters after the gospels that talk about submission in human relationships. Now, most of these passages are attributed to Paul, though most scholars believe that the letters where the idea of submission is most prominent were not actually written by Paul, but were written by later writers who were using Paul's name, which was actually a common practice in the ancient world. And the two groups of people who were most commonly told to submit were slaves and women. Slaves submit to your masters and wives submit to your husbands. So we can see some of those instructions in Ephesians 5, 21 through 25, where the writer says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the savior. And just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So this is a part of the New Testament called the household codes. And it was in essence borrowed from the accepted norms of Roman society and culture. Now, as I said, Ephesians was likely not written by Paul, but by a later writer using Paul's name. And we can see in the New Testament, this general regression that the later the writing the more the Christian movement had sort of gone away from the teachings and an example of Jesus. That, that the Jesus movement began as a radically countercultural movement where Jesus treated women as equal to men, where the unclean were welcomed into community and one that was seen as a direct threat to the power and the legitimacy of the Roman empire. That was seen as a direct threat to all of the powers of oppression and domination. Now, along with this counterculture of the early Christian movement was a belief shared by almost all of the early Christians that Jesus would come back within their lifetimes and would make everything right. So they could suffer the consequences. They could even risk death for the sake of their movement because the end was in sight. Jesus was coming soon. And in the letter to the Thessalonians, which is one of the earliest writings we have in the New Testament in a letter that Paul did, in fact, write, He wrote that there were even people who were still alive who would not taste death before Jesus came back. But that didn't happen. And over time, the early Christian movement sort of changed from one that defied the power of Rome into one that accommodated the norms and the customs of the empire. 
from one that was willing to risk everything, including death, to one that wanted to keep Rome happy so they wouldn't be persecuted. It was an understandable transformation, and in all honesty, it's one that I can't really condemn because I probably would have done the same thing. You see, people can only live with persecution and suffering for so long before it becomes unbearable. So while this transformation may be understandable, it did mean that Christianity lost something really important. It began the process that I would argue has continued to this day of reinforcing existing power dynamics rather than challenging them. And one place we see this most clearly is this idea of submission in human relationships, and particularly in who it is that is supposed to, to, supposed to submit. So in Roman society, slavery was common. So when the New Testament writers would tell slaves to submit to their masters, they are in essence sending a message to the empire that says, hey, look, we just believe in Jesus, but we're not here to mess up your way of life. Now, also in Roman society, patriarchy was the norm. The oldest male in each family, in essence, ruled the family. That male made all of the decisions for the rest of the family. That's where we get the Latin word paterfamilias. And not only was this the tradition and custom in Roman society, it was also the law. The oldest male had legal authority over his wives or wives and everyone else in the household, and the, and the oldest male legally handled all matters for the family. He even had authority to execute members of his family if he felt that was necessary. Women, on the other hand, weren't even allowed to be witnesses in a court of Roman law which makes the fact that women were the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection all the more radical. So again, by reinforcing rather than challenging the Roman household codes, the early Christians again were trying to demonstrate that their religion was not a threat to the norms, the traditions, the laws of the empire. This movement that began with Jesus being seen as such a threat that he was executed by the empire had transformed within the first 150 years after Jesus to one that tried to accommodate the norms of the empire. And I think this is when Christianity became more concerned with believing in Jesus than with following the example of Jesus. And I would argue that trend has largely continued to this day where existing power structures are far too often deemed the will of God rather than challenge. There are still many churches where women are not allowed to preach or to quote, sit in authority over a man. And millions and millions of people across the world and in our own country, and especially here in Alabama, are taught that a man is the head of the household, that wives should submit to the authority of their husbands. Just a, just a month or so ago, I saw a Facebook post by an acquaintance that said, God is the head of man, man the head of woman, and woman the head of children, the way God intended it to be. Unless we think this only harms women and families who adhere to this standard, the idea that men can control women or that men can make decisions for women impacts all of us as the roles of men being in positions of power and women having to submit to the will of men has impacted all of our society, including the law, just like it did in the Roman Empire. I'm gonna show a picture up here on, on the screen. This is from several years ago, and many of you may have seen this picture. So this is a group of congressional representatives and staffers and uh, members of the, the White House administration who are discussing and developing laws and policies about women's health. Every single person in that picture is a man. 
talking about something, developing laws about something that does not affect them at all, that only affects women. This is the same power dynamic at play in a recent piece of legislation in Ohio that some of you may have heard about. And this piece of legislation, it would require doctors, if it passed, to re-implant the embryo in an ectopic pregnancy, even though there is no accepted medical procedure to do so. And to try to attempt that would greatly risk the life of the mother. This piece of legislation was, was sponsored by State Representative John Becker. And he did not consult with doctors. He did not consult with women before drafting this legislation. And when he was challenged on it, he simply shrugged and brushed off the fact that he had sponsored a bill that literally would kill women if implemented and said, well, I didn't know ectopic pregnancies couldn't be re-implanted. You see, it turns out my joke earlier about straight white men thinking they are experts on things they know nothing about is not funny at all. In this case, it could kill people. The idea that men know more than women to the point that men can make decisions about things that only affect women has sadly been reinforced and reinforced over and over again rather than challenged by Christianity and the church. And certainly, yes, with some wonderful exceptions, but overall, it has been reinforced from the very beginning. To say that those without power must submit to those with power and to name that as the will of God has done unspeakable harm. It harms people in their personal relationships and it contributes to systemic oppression, all in the name of God. But friends, this is not how the Christian movement began. In our gospel reading that Catherine read earlier, Jesus was at the home of Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. Now, the norm would have been for Lazarus, Jesus, and the male disciples to sit together talking, or in this case, for Jesus to be teaching them, while the women, Mary and Martha, waited on them. And that's what, that's what Martha was doing, but not Mary. Mary was sitting with the men, listening to Jesus teach, and Martha is resentful because Mary is leaving all the work for her to do. And I think Martha often gets a bad rap that's not fair in this story because she's only doing what she's been told that she's supposed to do for her entire life. And by the fact that Mary is not helping her, well, that is creating a lot more work for her to do by herself. So she asks Jesus, tell Mary to help me. And in doing so, she's basically saying, hey, Jesus, tell Mary to act like a woman is supposed to act. Tell her to accept her role. But instead of telling Mary to accept her role, Jesus instead subverted that role, saying that Mary has chosen the right thing, the most important thing, that Mary has just as much right to hear Jesus teach as any of the men do, and, it will not, and he will not take that right away. That Jesus was subverting the norms of Roman society, the norms that say women must submit. But y'all, I think in this story, even Jesus doesn't go far enough. I mean, the work, after all, had to get done. Maybe the truly radical thing to do would have been for Jesus to get up himself and offer to help Martha, or to, or to insist that all of them together do the work because the work of hospitality is not just women's work. It's the work for everybody. So Jesus goes part of the way in subverting the norms of patriarchy. But I think the one in the story who should truly be our example is actually Mary. Think of how courageous it must have been for Mary to defy the role that had been imposed upon her. In Roman society, as I said, the head of the household had legal authority to punish others in the household if he thought it was necessary, even having the power of life and death. 
In other words, if a man thought a woman was stepping out of her place too much, he could literally kill her with no consequence. And while we have no indication that Lazarus was that kind of a man, this is the culture in which Mary was raised. And this is the culture that Mary dared to defy. You see, Mary is the great example for all of those who refuse to submit. She wouldn't submit to the authority of Lazarus. She wouldn't submit to the norms for acceptable behavior for women. And she wouldn't submit to the law that deemed her a second-class citizen. Friends, the problem with making submission a, Christ, a Christian virtue is that Christianity began not as a movement of submission, but it rather it began as a moment of resistance. Time and again, Jesus resisted the norms and the values of the empire. And Mary and other women throughout the Gospels resisted the call for them to submit to the will and the authority of men. So I guess the question for us this morning is, is there any redeeming the word submission? Or do we just need to throw it out altogether? The passage I read earlier from Ephesians, it begins well enough. Be subject one to another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, that sounds okay. And if the writer had just ended right there, instead of following it up with wives, submit to your husbands, well, maybe submission in human relationships could be a Christian virtue. I mean, we should all submit to others, right? We should all sometimes put our wants and our desires aside for the sake of other people. But it is precisely because the writer doesn't stop there, precisely because mutual egalitarian submission has never been the norm in Roman society or in our society or in any society, that I almost would argue that submission is too damaged to be redeemed. And even if the writer had stopped with urging his readers to submit to each other, that's still not enough in a society that tells one gender to submit to the authority and the will of another. That oppression, if it is not directly challenged, is always maintained. Or to say that another way, to not challenge the status quo is to accept oppression as the norm. But notice I said I am almost ready to just reject the idea of submission out of hand. Almost. But I don't think we can. The very first of the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You will have no other gods before me. Now, it's important to note that in giving the people the Ten Commandments, God was not giving them individual rules to follow, but rather God was giving them a communal covenant so that they could be different than the society of Egypt, different than the place of oppression and slavery. In Egypt, Pharaoh was like God, and everyone must submit to him. But the very first commandment, God says, I have delivered you from slavery, and you are, you are to submit to me and to me alone. You see, submitting to God goes hand in hand with resisting every other power that would act as if they are God that would impose submission upon us. Now, the idea of submitting fully and wholly to God and to God's will is at the heart of what it means to be Methodist. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, wrote what he called a covenant prayer. And at the beginning of every new year, Wesley invited all of the Methodists of his day to offer this prayer as their covenant in the upcoming year. And in the prayer, Wesley sets the example of what true Christian submission should look like because he, the leader of the movement, prays that he may submit to the will of God. And so I want to end my sermon today by inviting you to pray that prayer with me. And, in, and as we pray it, I want you to remember that submitting to God 
is not only an act of obedience to God, but it's also an act of resistance to all the ways people in power have claimed that we should submit to them. So may we always submit to the will of God, meaning that we will also always resist the powers of oppression and domination, because we will have no other God but the Lord. I invite you to pray with me as the words are on the screen. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praise for you or criticize for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. As Katie mentioned, you see the word each week on the board. During this last song, we're going to actually flip the board over for another word, the word resist, to remind us that submission to God always goes hand in hand with resisting those who tell us we're second class, telling us that we have to bend our will to theirs. So may we always submit to God and always resist powers of domination and oppression.